Welcome to this special presentation on hot cognition. You're thinking, Mike, what's hot cognition? It's this idea of, <laughs> sorry, I thought oh, that probably, oh man, no, I should start this over, but I'm going to keep going. We're looking here at this idea of how our motivational systems and how our affect or how our felt emotion affects our judgment, our ability to make rational, common sense, uh, level-headed, scientific, analytic, calculative um, evidence-based thinking when that can get threatened by our emotional system and our kind of in-the-moment emotional state. What What's being called here hot cognition, the impact of motivation and affect on judgment. Welcome, grab a coffee, grab a comfortable seat, and uh, let's get into this. Cheers. So before I get into the concept here and like why I think it has such relevancy in 2020, I want to give credit to where this idea comes from. And it comes from this, uh, a great researcher from that I met through the University of Waterloo named Dr. Zivakunda. And uh, when I was in, I believe my fourth year, I took a social cognition class. And this was the book that she that was used in the class, but that she also authored. And today in this class, this presentation, what I want to do is go deep into this, well, one chapter of her book specifically, and then I'm going to kind of branch off. Um, but it's sort of like a textbook chapter in a way. Um, but looking at this idea of hot cognition and how emotion affects decision-making, but I just wanted to shout her out because she was, she's a fascinating writer one of the most interesting teachers I've had. And uh, yeah, so just in memory of her, this is this is not just that though, be also because of her work having such incredible relevancy, right? You can see there like her, her um, well-known paper on kind of the case for motivated reasoning or how motivation affects our reasoning processes. That was 1990, 30 years ago. So you might be thinking, like, why are we spending time reading info or about a researcher from 30 years ago? But, you know, my students won't probably don't say that because we, we're understanding here that we're talking about a building field of psychology and that Zivda Kunda actually had a huge role in this emerging subfield at the time of social cognition. And a lot of it is related to, like, ideas like schemas and a lot of these, like, Piagian ideas that we've been talking about and these ideas related to how the constructs of the mind are building early in the child. And that's kind of what we're looking at a lot in the developmental psych class. And then with this special presentation, one of my ideas with this is to kind of link to how this um, kind of connects with the broader world of psychology and where a lot of those ideas kind of go is into this realm of social cognition, how we actually make sense of our and interpret our kind of perceptual experience of our reality. So the main reason I want to do this presentation is because this idea of hot cognition has kind of been on my mind a lot lately. I, as you know, I've been in the recently I've been moving. And as I was moving, I came across this book because I was just you know, I moved all my books and all my stuff and 
for whatever reason, it kind of stood out to me. And then in class with some of my Conestoga students, I brought it up. And then it's just kind of been sitting on with me. And I keep having this thought of like, I should just do a presentation specifically on this. It kind of fits really well right now. And I think that there's an incredible explanatory value in even just this language of looking at, or this, uh, not even the language, but this theoretical kind of framework of looking at our mind, our, looking at our cognitive processes as kind of being in two functional states. And one is, and the, with the big variable that makes them different, this amount of emotional engagement, right? And we can look at, so this was all just a ramble to say that hot cognition makes more sense in relation to an idea like cold cognition. We look at cold cognition as like rational decision-making, scientific calculations, um, objective measurement, like very cold calculated. And then hot cognition is being like kind of the emotional mind or the, we're talking about processes. We're not necess necessarily talking about like specific things or places in the brain. We're talking about processes or things the brain does. Right, so hot cognition refers to those mental processes that are driven by our desires and our feelings, right? So our emotions. Those cases where our goals and our moods shape our judgments. So think about that for a sec, because that's actually a pretty loaded last two lines. That like our goals, so what we want to happen, and our moods, so our emotions, shape how we actually judge and make sense of our world. Now think of, there's just so many different scenarios where you could apply that idea. Politics, sports, dating, work. Oh, it's snowing outside. Crazy. Sorry, that was a random comment. It's uh, here, it's Sunday afternoon in Kitchener, it's snowing. All right, that's the first snow of the year. Sorry, I just caught that other side of my eye through the window. But anyways, it's nice to be sitting in a nice warm room talking about hot cognition with my awesome students. So let me just read this quick. Cold cognition, in quotes, is generally referring to relatively, you don't have to have this written down, but just for your knowledge. Cold cognition is generally referring to relatively intellectual and reason-based information-driven processes. Okay, so it's kind of like that cold calculations. In contrast, hot cognition refers to those mental processes that are driven by our desires and feelings, those cases where our goals and moods shape our judgments, as it says on the screen. Both motivation and affect may influence which concepts, beliefs, and rules we apply to a judgment. We may be especially likely to apply those that are congruent with the goals and moods that we hold. Now think about that. It's like we may be likely to apply okay let me just say that again because this is basically saying like depending on what you want to be the right answer so say we're talking about like in some political situation or something that that actually shapes how you make sense of the situation Motivation may have, um, or sorry, both motivation and affect may influence which concepts, beliefs, and rules we use to apply to a, ju a judgment. We may be especially likely to apply those that are congruent or in line with our goals and moods. 
Motivation and affect may also influence our mode of processing information, right? So it's like, what that means is basically like if we hear things that go along with what we already think, we don't, we tend to accept it pretty quick. But if we hear things that go deeply against what we think, we tend to scrutinize that information more. So what it's saying is, is not only does what we want the world to be like shape how we make sense of it, it also shapes how much we engage new information. And we're going to get to this later, but just to foreshadow a bit, it's this idea that like the things that fit our model or Piagian scheme in the broadest sense of the world word, um, we accept more quickly and we put to less scrutiny. That's super important to understand in relation to making an accurate read of our social world. Right, so just to say that piece again, motivation and affect may influence our mode of processing information. So that's what I'm saying there. Determining whether we rely on quick and easy inferential shortcuts. This is like this, so it must be this. You know, inference is like, um, you know, one guy acted like this towards me, so all guys are like this. It's like inferring from one to the other. That's what the word inference means. Like, because this was like this, then this must be like that. Um, so it's saying like, we're more likely to do something like that rather than elaborate kind of systematic reasoning. So now think about how, how much that would potentially bias us, bias us, right? That we all need to know that we have this human tendency to accept things that we want to accept easier than things that we don't. social cognition the concept that they use to talk about this is called directional goals now think about that for a second a directional goal it's like i would it's like i'm asking a question and i want the answer to be a certain answer i'm not neutral i i, I want it to go a certain way so you could just have in your notes something like when you have a goal of having a certain conclusion that goal itself biases your judgment right so if you have a goal let me just read it like this directional goals the goal of arriving at a particular conclusion so having the goal of having something specific happen can bias our judgments yet although this idea that our desires can shape our judgments is well entrenched in our culture this issue has been a topic of considerable controversy within social psychology, right? Because it's hard to establish exactly how much it biases and how. We're going to get into this a lot today. Directional goal bias, uh, bias the selection of, sorry, directional goals bias the selection of beliefs and rules that one assesses in the process of reasoning. So again, don't worry about the specific language. All it's saying is like, Social psychological, social cognitive languages really, um, I don't know what the word would be, thick, but, but the point is just this idea of like, when it's saying what beliefs, what rules we use, the processes we use, it's like, how do we engage this, that what we want to happen affects how we literally engage information that we experience in our world. I'll read that again. Because I kind of 
butchered it a bit last time. Directional goals bias the selection of beliefs and rules one accesses in the process of reasoning. We're particularly likely to access those beliefs and rules that support our desired conclusion. Directional goals also influence the amount of effort we invest in judgments. When we encounter undesirable evidence, we work especially hard at refuting it. And here's something you don't want to hear. You work harder at proving that that's not right. Nevertheless, although motivation can bias our judgments, it doesn't blind us to reality. We'll only draw our desired conclusion if we can justify it. So now, but that's interesting because we can do lots of mental gymnastics to justify things. And our ability to do so, to justify it, it can be constrained by reality, plausibility, right? So it's, it's not saying that our goals completely just make us see like some completely like virtual reality wrong world but it's saying that to say that it doesn't have an effect on and a shaping perceptual effect is also wrong it's having a it's having an effect because we're wanting things we're wanting to see things go a certain way we're wanting to hate a certain politician or like a certain girl or guy or um you know respect a certain person or not and or you know, have a certain thing go a certain way at work. So what's the under underlying point here? The more you want to see a thing a certain way, the more that directional goal, which is just another way of saying wanting to see a certain thing go a certain way, can be a threat to your ability to see a situation accurately. Okay, so I have a thought experiment for us. I want you to imagine the following situation. I give you all a brief test of intelligence. Okay, so I say like through through uh, the university portal or whatever, I'm going to send you all a link, answer these 10 questions, and it's, it's, it's a test of intelligence. You're given false feedback then on how well you do. Okay, so this is an important thing for you to remember. I get you all to do it, and then I give you feedback, but the feedback's fake. It's false. Half of you are just randomly told that you did really well. The other half are randomly told that you've done really bad. Okay, so that's the experimental condition. That's what happened in the experiment. We took a bunch of people, get the, got them to do this standard test, and then brief, like, little intelligence quiz or whatever, and then... I just randomly, with no um, relation to how well you actually did, put give tell half of you did great, the other half that you did terrible. Then I give you that feedback, and then I ask you how how valid do you think that test was? Do you think which category you're in is going to shape what you say? So now think of what I'm asking here. I'm saying you all do the same test. Half of you find out now. You don't know that I'm theoretically in this hypothetical experiment you don't know that i'm lying right and i'm and that i just randomly said that you did good or bad you're like let's assume that you think that it's real it's like how much does how you did on that test shape how you see that test not surprisingly when they actually did this experiment they find that those that um heard that they did well think that the test is an excellent judge of intelligence whereas those that are told that they do poorly rate it much lower 
Why do you think? Could it be possibly that they're motivated to think of its validity in a certain way based on how they see themselves, based on how they see their own performance? Those told that they excelled at the test are maybe more motivated to believe in its validity. If the test is valid, their excellent performance on it proves that they're really smart, or which to them would be probably a highly desirable conclusion. In contrast, those told that they had done poorly on the test are more probably motivated to believe that it's not valid, that the test is, is no good, because if it's no good, then their performance on it doesn't actually mean anything about their intelligence. The overarching motivation to maintain and enhance one's self-regard creates a desire to believe in a test that one has excelled at and to disbelieve in a test that one has failed. And these desires could lead to the two groups to evaluate the test in very different ways based on this totally fake arbitrary subgrouping that happened at the beginning. Pretty interesting, eh? And this is just a random made up nothing test. So think about things that people actually care about. A really important conversation because within psychology, there's been debate about this. Like, are we talking here about a motivational issue about a, or about a cognitive issue? Is this all just when people are, say, some stereotyping other people or other groups of people? Is that a mental cognitive problem? Or is, is it better understood as an emotional or what we could call here motivational? Could we have a motivational account of bias? That means like a motivational explanation for why we see it. Maybe it's not all just a cognitive process. Basically what I'm saying is maybe it's an emotional thing as much as it is a thinking thing. Right, so we're going to get into this idea of what... What would that even mean? What is a motivational account of bias? In her book that we're looking at today, Kunda writes that by the 90s, researchers had basically succeeded in obtaining evidence of this idea that motivation affects our judgments. So this is kind of a, a done topic. Like obviously there's, there's strong evidence for this idea that we're emotionally motivated uh, creatures. And then, so the kind of field of social psychology has really, or um, social cognition, which is a branch of cognitive psychology, really started to look at this idea of the mechanisms that underlie that. Like, what is actually, if we say that, okay, so if we say, like, our, um, our emotions shape our thinking, the mechanisms is like somebody just being like, okay, well, how, how, specifically how? Like, let's, it's great that you say that. Okay, great. I know that when I'm in a bad mood, I make, you know, rash decisions I maybe wouldn't otherwise make. But it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to specifically and concisely articulate the mechanisms or the, the, the ways in which that actually happens in the brain. And so we're going to look at some of this stuff now or throughout this presentation. We're going to start to break down the mechanistic processes behind this emotional influence on our more what would otherwise be a more rational way of processing information.
so at this point you're all sitting there and you're like okay mike whatever this is like hopefully you're finding this at least somewhat interesting but you're thinking but how does this relate to speed dating and i'm glad you asked because i actually have specific information about that probably none of you are actually thinking that and that joke works better in person and probably bombed and if i had a cricket sound effect it'd be a good time to press it but uh, i wanted to make this idea okay so now outcome dependency what if you thought that someone you heard talking you were going to maybe have a date with later would that affect how you judged what you heard them saying so don't worry about writing anything down for this slide just, i'm just going to read something to you how could you be motivated to hold a particular belief about a stranger one way of creating such motivation is through making yourself dependent on this person for some important goal. <clears throat> if you know that the success of your team depends on the competence of a new teammate, for example, you may be strongly motivated to believe that this person is competent, several, at least at first. Several studies have shown that outcome dependency does indeed bias judgment, right? So you want it to be a certain way, outcome dependency. You're, you're, you have some dependency on outcome. Remember, this is another way of saying this idea of having when we have desired conclusions, when we want our world to go a certain way, we want to like this person. We want to think what they're saying is smart. That might actually affect how smart we think it is. Right? Which, if, if we're caring about truth and getting an accurate read of our world, that's a <clears throat> at least an interesting point. Okay, so again, several studies have shown that outcome dependency does indeed bias judgment. In one study, participants recruited recruited to take part in a dating study. This is by Beershield. This was a 1976 study. Before meeting their dating partner, they watched a videotape discussion amongst three people. Okay, so now think about this. It's like, you're going to go on a date with this person. But before you go on a date, this blind date, you watch a video with three people talking. And you're told one of the people is the one that you're going to go on a date with. So there's a group of three participants, each expecting to date a different one of the three discussants and an additional control group that was not expecting to date any of them. One would expect that participants would be motivated to see their future dating partner in the best possible light. And indeed, that's what the study found. Participants rated their expected date as more likable than the other two and as having more of a positive personality. So it's the interesting question then is, is it that the fact that the participants came to view the person that they wanted to like and respect as likable and as competent provide evidence for this idea that our motivation influences our judgment? So you've probably heard this term before, cognitive dissonance. And I wanted to spend a second bringing this concept up because I think it's an interesting uh, concept. And I think, okay, so first of all, this word dissonance. So it's interesting where this word even comes from because the term dissonance means like a lack of harmony between notes in a song. So it sort of means like if we were all singing a song together and I was singing like really out of tune. But the idea here is like, when that's happening at a cognitive level, when we're thinking or we're, we, we see ourselves a certain way or we want to see ourselves a certain way, but then we see ourselves acting differently and there's this disconnect between what we say and what we do and, and that that disconnect causes a 
a dissonance or a lack of alignment or harmony or congruence between the two. According to cognitive dissonance theory, there's a tendency for individuals to seek consistency amongst their cognitions, for example, amongst their beliefs and opinions. When there's an inconsistency between attitudes or the behaviors, right, so when someone sees an inconsistency between their attitudes and behaviors, so you see there's somebody that is, you met through your church or something that's supposed to be a really good person, then you see them and they're like really mean to you in a different context. When there's this kind of inconsistency, something must change to eliminate the dissonance. In the case of a discrepancy between attitudes and behavior, the more likely the attitude will change to accommodate the behavior. Two factors affect the, the strength of the dissonance. Right, so it's like, so let me just put this a little more simple. It's like if, um, you're telling everybody that cares about you that you're quitting smoking, but you're actually not quitting smoking, and you're sneaking smoke some people aren't noticing, and you know that you're doing that, and maybe you're getting praise from people for how long you've been not smoking, but they don't know. And so there's, it creates this kind of internal tension. And there's different things you can do to deal with that tension. You can either change your behavior, but that's less likely. It's more likely that we change our attitude or we, we change maybe how willing we are to lie. We maybe change how much we view quitting as important, whatever. I'm, and sorry, I'm just kind of freestyling that example. But the idea is that we need to do something and it's not like we necessarily even know we do this, to deal with that disconnect, to deal with that, what the word is, is dissonance, lack of harmony. So, so Festinger in 1957 suggested there's three ways to deal with this. We can reduce the importance of the belief, right? So maybe we just don't view smoking as, as that, quitting smoking is that important anymore. We can add more uh, constant beliefs that outweigh the dissonant beliefs, like maybe that a constant belief is like you could add another belief that kind of trumps it, like, well, my personal freedom to do what I want is more important than, you know, not lying to people or something. See how we're, we're getting now into this, like, kind of word games. We're, we're living the lie a little bit. Or through, you could actually change the beliefs so they're no longer inconsistent. Dissonance occurs most often in situations where an individual must choose between two incompatible beliefs or actions. The greatest dissonance is created when the two alternatives are equally attractive. Furthermore, attitude change is more likely in the direction of less incentive, since this results in lower dissonance. Yeah, so it's like, in this respect, dissonance theory is contradictory to most behavioral theories, which would predict a greater attitude change with more incentive. Right, this isn't reinforcement based. This is actually based on, on trying to deal with this tension caused by a lack of inner harmony. So you'll hear people use this word cognitive dissonance all the time. Like they're saying they're one thing, but they're doing something else. And that that creates mental tension, cognitive dissonance.
the crucial role of arousal and arousal here in the broadest sense of the word like a stimulation to the system i'm going to read this from the text or from the book that um kunda's book making sense of people dissonance theory just remember dissonance this like feeling of um unease that's created by this lack of of alignment or synchronicity between two of your beliefs or two of your you know you uh go to church and you say all these very religious things and then you live in a way that's not in accordance with that i'm not saying you obviously i'm saying like that's that would be an example this dissonance theory provided an important arena for the debate between proponents of motivational influences and proponents of cognitive mechanisms right so today we're just kind of calling hot versus cold cognition right so cold cognition being kind of classical analytical calculate uh, calculations you know scientific really kind of the rational cold calculated thinking and then hot cognition referring to the more emotional heated um motivational is the word we're using here influence in a typical dissonance study participants are induced to support a position that runs contrary to their attitudes so for example you get a bunch of people to write a paper that goes against their political opinion so say if we got i got you all to write about trump and i asked you first like do you support or are you against trump right and since he's such a polarizing person people are very almost predictably going to be either very for or very against there's not going to be a ton of people that are in the middle right so then I, I get you to tell me let's say this is all in a in a situation of confidence and you tell me and then I tell you okay well I actually for this experience for this thought experiment that we're doing we need you to actually write the opposite right so I get everyone that hates Trump to write something about praising all the, the good things he's done and then people that love him talking about all of his problems right so the point here is like getting you to write something that is against what you already think in the typical dissonant study participants are induced or asked to support a position that goes contrary to their attitudes if they're also convinced that they had written an essay on their own free will their attitudes shift towards the position they'd expressed right so sorry i had to pause that for a second my daughter just came and asked something um but she's back in bed now so so the last point i want i want to just say this again um that if they think that it's of their own free will their attitude shift towards the position they'd express so now think of what that means like say there's an ex a situation where um you think that i really like freud and maybe you don't really like freud but you write an, an you write several essays for me talking about how important freud is because you're doing it because you know maybe you're trying to manipulate me into giving you a better mark but over the course of doing that you actually start to like freud more and that what this is suggesting is some of that is because you start to 
almost get connected to the fact that you've expressed this opinion. Right, and that especially if you don't feel like you're being forced. So this is especially if they're convinced that they're doing it in their own free will, their attitude will shift even greater towards the position they just expressed, even if it's opposite to their original position. The originator of dissonance theory, Leon Festinger, who we talked about on the last slide, um, believed that attitude change in such experiments resulted from an attempt to reduce this unpleasant tension called dissonance by uh, between the two conflicting beliefs. I oppose X, but I just wrote an essay in favor of X. I just I have just written an essay in favor of X. This dissonance would be reduced if I came to believe that I actually support X. Right, so let's just change X to, you know, I uh, I oppose communism. I just wrote an essay in favor of communism. Maybe I would feel less internal tension if I started to actually accept some of the ideas of communism a little more. Now I don't. Um, that's a hypothetical. But and and again, this is one of these cognitive processes where it's not like we know we're doing that. It's not like we're having this mental conversation. It's like a under the waves pressure that there's this like dis I mean disease not not in like the word disease but like a dis-ease a lack of ease amongst our internal cognitive system sort of some subsequent cognitive uh, social cognitive theorists have suggested that this dissonance arousal uh, is related to a threat to self, how we see ourselves, and that people are motivated to adopt attitudes they've been led to express, and that this motivation actually provokes even more attitude change, right? So if people are expressing attitudes in public, even if it's against what they initially think, the act of doing that reinforces, and there's this like social Pressure. I'm trying to avoid just saying pressure, but motivational pressure, maybe. The motivational account assumes that one is upset and disturbed by one's behavior, and that this distress provokes attitude change, and that one's motivated to reduce the, the distress. Emotions such as distress are typically accompanied by physiological arousal, such as blood rushing to our face, our heartbeat quickening, our palms getting sweaty. This arousal tends to be non-specific. Okay, so now think about this for a sec. So what she's saying is that this, we feel this psycho, this physical anxiety stress. This arousal tends to be non-specific. So one's interpretation of it depends on one's understanding of the situation. And this is like what I was saying before. It's not like we necessarily know we're doing this. We just feel this is anxiety. I'll read that sentence again. This arousal tends to be nonspecific, so one's interpretation of it depends on one's understanding of the situation. The same arousal can be taken to reflect euphoria, fear, distress, depending on whether one is surrounded by clowns, tigers, or crying babies. Right? So that's just a kind of that's just the way she said it in her writing. But she's saying like, depending on the cues in the environment, uh, one uses the cues available in the situation to make sense of their arousal their psychological stimulation. Arousal plays a key role in shaping our beliefs 
about our emotional states. The more aroused we are, the more likely we are to assume we're experiencing a strong emotion. And if we have a reason to believe the emotion is negative, the more likely we are to do something about it. More recent research by neuroscientists have confirmed that people rely on their arousal to infer that they're concerned about threats. Right, so if somebody walks into a room you're in and you all of a sudden feel this huge reaction, we in this kind of deep intuitive level weigh that heavily. Brain damaged patients who do not experience arousal do not avoid dangerous situations even when they're aware of the danger. That's from some research by Zana and Copper. So it, it's it's so what does being in an aroused state, right? That's like an emotionally charged this critical role that that arousal of the system that hot cognition plays. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be doing this more in this presentation than I usually ever would, uh, direct quoting. Um, but I think it's just, it's just I don't know I'm kind of trying to just share this chapter with you, and I, th I thought it'd be kind of cool to just read some of these studies. So uh, for this, this is going to be about two pages. This is actually page two eighteen to two twenty of uh, the book that we're looking at here called Social Cognition: Making Sense of People. <clears throat> And this is looking at a study from Zana and Cooper in 1974. So Zana and Cooper in 1974 recognized the implications of these ideas about how we infer our emotions to dissonance theory. They reason that inference that one is upset. So what like us understanding why we're upset and, and the inference is like why we think we're upset, that that's important in terms of this dissonance and this feeling of this lack of uh, equilibrium or this, this, this tension because of our kind of competing we believe one thing, but we're acting in a different way. This counter-attitudinal behavior, it says on the slide, right? So counter-attitudinal behavior just means like when we're doing behaviors that are counter to our attitudes. And then that creates this arousal. And then why do we think that we're feeling that? Right, because it's not like in the moment we're so conscious and so self-aware that we're like noticing this process in ourselves. Right, this is something that um, is happening, like I said before, kind of below the waves. They reason that the inference that one is upset in a dissonance experiment requires two components, arousal and information that would lead one to attribute that arousal to the distress over one's actions. If it is the motivation to reduce such distress that drives attitude change in a dissonant experiment, then both the components should be essential for attitude change. Eliminate arousal, and people won't assume that they're upset, or provide an alternative reason for the arousal, and people won't attribute it to their distress over their actions. Indeed, in a series of experiments, Zana and Cooper and their colleagues were able to show that the presence of arousal, along with the belief that it was caused by one's counter-attitudinal behavior, played a crucial role in provoking attitude change. First, they predicted that if people could, uh, if people induced to perform a counter-attitudinal behavior could be tricked into misattributing, so thinking it was the wrong reason, their resulting discomfort and the unpleasant arousal that accompanied it to a different source, they would not think that they're upset about their behavior and so would not change their attitudes. 
right? So what they're saying is that you do something that you know goes against your attitudes and that makes you feel tension or upsetness. And that upsetness might actually make you change unless you think that that upsetness is being caused by something else. That's that this misattribution they're talking about. I know this is a little bit complex, but this will make more sense in just a second when I talk about the actual study. Okay, so I'll just read this part again because I kind of wasn't super clear last time. So they predicted that if people induced to perform a counter-attitudinal behavior could be tricked into misattributing their resulting discomfort and unpleasant arousal that accompanied it to some other different source, they would not think that they're upset about that behavior and would not change their attitude. To demonstrate this, they conducted a typical dissonance experiment in which participants were asked to perform a counter-attitudinal behavior, but they added a new twist. Participants were asked to ingest a pill. In fact, the pill was a placebo, a sugar pill that had no side effect. Control participants were told truthfully that the pill would have no effect on them. The participants showed the kind of attitude change obtained in a typical dissident study. They became more supportive of the attitude they'd been induced to express, right? Like they wrote a paper about something that went against what they thought. And they, by the time they were done, they were, they had a more supportive attitude towards it. All right. Now, another group of participants was told that the pill that they would take might make them feel aroused and tense. These participants were expected to feel the same discomfort and arousal experienced by the control participants and for the same reason. And they were disturbed by the behavior. But unlike the control participants, these participants were given an alternative explanation for their arousal, the pill. If they misattributed their arousal to the pill, they'd be unlikely to realize that they were disturbed by their behavior and therefore would be would have little motivation to actually change their attitude. This is exactly what happened. Participants who believed the pill would cause arousal showed no attitude change. Yet another group of participants were informed that the pill would make them feel more relaxed. These participants showed even greater attitude change than did the controls. Expecting relaxation, they must have concluded from their surprising arousal and discomfort that they were extremely disturbed by their behavior and therefore that their motivation to change their attitudes must have been especially strong. This study showed that attitude change in dissonant experiments required that the correct attribution of arousal to be counter... Uh, let me start that sentence again. This study showed that attitude change in dissonant experiments required the correct attribution of arousal to one's counter-attitudinal behavior. Ooh, these, these sentences are a mouthful, but basically it's saying it's like, if you're doing something that is against what you think, so if you're behaving in a way that goes against your, who you think you are, that that causes a anxiety, but you're only actually gonna do something about it if you can correctly identify what's causing that anxiety. And if you have things going on in your situation that could also be misattributed as causes, so you could incorrectly label that as what's making you anxious, then the ability of that to change your behavior might get lost or confused. I know that that's a bit confusing. If you got confused in this explanation, you might have to you know, watch this last five minutes again. I know it's a confusing, difficult study. This is, uh, Zivakunda is 
she was cool this way, but it's like you had to have your coffee and you had to be paying attention because everything was cumulative and she was really talking about this idea. Some of it's just the language though, so I'm going to keep trying to just use the language that uh, they use, but then also um, try to simplify because we're really just talking about this idea that when we act in ways that go against how we think we, so if we think we're a really good person and then we have a homeless person come up to us and ask us for money and and we like act all weird and like get all overwhelmed by the situation it's like that causes a little bit of a discomfort it's like it's a you know a, a, the word that we keep using today is dissonance and remember that that word links back to like a lack of harmony between notes in a song For this uh, self-affirmation one, I think I'm going to continue with that example I just kind of freestyle stumbled upon in the last one, because it's actually such a classic example and kind of real life example of cognitive dissonance and how it affects us, because I think we've all experienced that idea or a lot of us have experienced that idea where we see homeless people um, maybe begging for money and we feel something right like we would we want to think of ourselves as people that would help people in need but you know i have to be honest with you if i'm in toronto and uh a, a street person or a homeless person i should say comes up it's like and i have it's 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 a little bit different from by myself if i have my my you know my little girl with me it's a it's a different situation i'm and, and and see like right there right so this is where i'm saying it's like this self-affirmation it, it's like it's almost like a threat to how i see myself because it's like i want to see myself as the type of person that's like going to go out of their way to help someone but depending on the situation it's like my desire to keep my daughter safe way outweighs that so it's like but then so then i maybe i just ignore the person or i'm like oh sorry buddy and i keep going and then it's like well now i just did a behavior that's counter attitudinal to use the language of this slide right i did something that kind of isn't what i would have liked to think i would do and that these counter attitudinal behaviors if, especially if you're in a study situation you get people to do it so the classic example right is to get them to write and i've already said this but to get them to write a paper or to give a speech the more the more social it is the more performative it is, the more powerful, right? So it's like if, that's an important point I don't think I've said yet. So it's like, it's one thing if I get you to write that example I said earlier about Trump, it's one thing if I get you to write it, it's a whole other thing if I get you to do a speech about it. Um, or you could take like a much less charged topic or um, just a totally differently charged topic. Um, like basically just any political topic, right? And you just get somebody to do the opposite of what they, or write the opposite of what they think. But, so sorry, I don't mean to confuse that, but this just to kind of keep this idea, it's like in a lot of these experiments, they're kind of trying to create an experimental position where they can challenge somebody to do something that goes against their, their thoughts and then look at what the resulting effect of that is. That 
that actually these behaviors may challenge. So say, for example, that scenario where it's like, I want to see myself as a good person. I want to help people that need help. But I walked straight past the person. And so it creates this dissonance. It creates this tension between those two things. I heard myself want to help that, have the thought that I wanted to help the person. And I also just saw myself walk straight past them. These behaviors may challenge one's sense of oneself as an intelligent and decent person, depending on the situation. And so create a need to reaffirm one's sense of self-worth. It's like, ah, you know, those people shouldn't be doing that anyways. So think about that, that point I just made. Ah, these people shouldn't be doing that anyways. Why, why do people let, why do we, why does the city let, and see how I start doing these mental, I don't want to use the word tricks, but tactics, mechanisms to deal with the uncomfortableness I feel from that dissonance. And especially if that dissonance has an effect on how I see myself. Okay, to, under, to understand this idea and to explain this point, I want to use, come back to this word dissonance and this idea of, and I know I've said this a few times, but I'm kind of wanting to hammer this in, this idea of dissonance as meaning like the notes of a song not being properly synced, right? Or like, it's like your favorite song is being played, but the person playing the drums is offbeat and it's kind of wrecking the song. So that offbeat, that's where this dissonance word comes from. And it's, it's, so now think about this. So say, let's keep using that example because I come in, I'm going into the, the Zares or to the grocery store and, and someone comes and asks for change and I, I kind of brush them off and I feel kind of bad about that. And then I go into the store and I, as I turn the corner, there's an old lady who's struggling and she's about to drop something and I go over and I help her. And she says, oh, thank you, young man. You're so kind. Thank you so much. It's such a help. Blah, blah, blah. And I feel better. It's like, okay, so now think about that for a sec because I, I kind of freestyled that. But I want you to think about that situation just for this slide, right? So if after you've had this counterattitudinal behavior, so you thought you're you want to help people, but then you ignored the person. If after that, following that, you're reminded of the other valuable things about yourself. So all of a sudden you have this other experience with this other woman where you help her and, and she validates that part of you that you just felt bad about. We see this reduction in your uh, need for self-affirmation based change. Motivation to reaffirm oneself can drive attitude change following these counterattitudinal behaviors but when this motivation is satisfied through other routes right like me wanting to be a good person i didn't help that person but then i helped this old lady and she was very thankful and i felt good and i met that th need through a different route so i didn't need to change my attitudes if you really get that point there's such wide ranging implications of that it's like the dissonance is met by 
well, satisfied through another route. You know, it's funny making presentations because oftentimes you create a slide like this and then when you're presenting it later, you're in a kind of different mind state and it's like, even just thinking about just a, not argument, but just conversation I just had with my wife, it's like, it's so interesting how much what we want something to be can compromise our objectiveness in the moment. Our motivations for the world, our motivation to see things in certain light, to see ourselves certain ways, to see others certain ways, to see certain situations certain ways, can actually compromise our judgment, our ability to actually be sure that what we're perceiving is accurate some if you spend some time looking at the literature in uh, social cognitive psychology you'll notice that a lot of time is spent looking at this idea of motivated reasoning so now again remember reasoning is just why things are the way they are why you think things are the way they are right so if we're talking about like moral reasoning it's like why you think things are good or bad Right, so reasoning is the why. Motivated reasoning is sometimes we might be motivated to see the why a certain way. And that that actually might, again, this is all being presented in from the context of these as potential threats to an accurate read of our world. That when we're, one way that this affects us is it actually affects our memory. It can actually, and, and you'll hear this sometimes reported in different ways, like mood congruent memory. You'll hear people talk about like, and, and you probably know this, you just know this from your own life, that when you're in a bad mood, it's easy to have other thoughts that keep you in bad moods. And, you know, you're feeling in a low mood about something related to dating or something, and all of a sudden you're thinking about like all the negative things that you've experienced related to that in your life. And it's like... It seems that there's almost this motivated memory search going on, right? And that people with different motives in different situations bring different memories to mind. Thinking I, that's such a, to me, that's such a fascinating um, comment, like to bring something to mind, right? Like how, how we, how in certain situations, in certain motivational states, certain memories are more likely to come forward than others. Now, the actual mechanisms behind that are in incredibly complex. Even when we're motivated to arrive at a particular conclusion, we're also motivated oftentimes to be rational or to construct a justification for a desired conclusion that would persuade a dis dispassionate observer, right? Like we would like to at least think that if we explained our reasoning to a dispassionate observer is what it said in the book, but that just means like to just a random normal person that's not all emotional about it, that they would agree. Right, in a certain way, that's like the whole point of counseling. It's like sometimes it's really helpful to talk to somebody that can look at your situation without the emotion, 
because they're not as deeply embedded in it. So anyways, that's just a side note. Motivated memory search. And then that this, this other idea is that it actually plays in with belief construction. So people's ability to construct a desired self-image is constrained. So even in our ability to create this who we think we are, there's limits to that because we see who we are. We have prior self-knowledge. We'll draw our desired conclusion only if we can come with enough evidence to support it. If we can, you know, and enough, if we can convince ourselves, basically. But despite our best efforts to be objective and rational, motivation may nevertheless shape our judgment because the process of justification construction can itself be biased by our goals. Now, let me say this again, because I just, I tried to just kind of seamlessly switch into a quote there but uh kunda's her writing is very smart and all of her words are very specific and concise she's very concise but the flow is the flow is a bit challenging at times so let me just do this again despite our best efforts to be objective and rational motivation may nevertheless shape our judgment because the process of justification construction can itself be biased by our goals. So it's like that's a tongue twister of a sentence, but that's beautifully concise. To construct justification for our desired conclusion, so to construct reasons that justify, you know, us seeing what we want to see, we search through our memory for beliefs and rules, or this is this is like this because of this. That that'd be like a mental rule that support these conclusions directly. So I'll start that again without me adding. To construct justification for desired conclusions, we search through our memory for beliefs and rules that support these conclusions directly and use existing knowledge to construct new general beliefs and theories from which our desired conclusions can be derived. So we either find, so think about this, look at this for a sec. It's like we either do a motivated memory search to find ideas that support the mood we're in or the position we're motivated to support and then at the and if we don't find that we actually can construct beliefs right and this is all connected to this idea of motivated reasoning yeah as human beings we're very complex creatures you know especially at the cognitive level So now let's keep going let's keep going with this for a sec so in uh dunning ludenberg and sherman's work looking at this idea of motivated inference so how we can be motivated at times to think that certain things um like inference means reading into something that we can read into things the way that we read into things can be influenced by our emotions right and so that we we do this right and we're, we're in this kind of selective memory search we talked about on the last slide and we're constructing new beliefs and we're almost creating these casual theories. And by casual theories, I just mean we don't know we're doing it. We're not intentionally doing it, but it's like we're in a Piaget, in, in like a Piaget kind of way of like these kind of complex schemas that 
Our ability to selectively access those beliefs that best support our goals may also enable us to construct these casual theories that support these desired beliefs. This is like, you know, if you if you like the comedian Chris Rock, he said, this is like when we start living the lie. It's like we're living, another way of saying living the lie is like living the casual theory that we've created to support our desired belief. Again, I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to kind of walk that line between using the social cognitive language, but keep kind of tiring, tying it back to this idea that like we're, we're, even though the language is thick, we're talking about things that you all understand. And I know that you're all smart people. I don't mean that you don't understand the language, but I just mean at a certain point, the language in, in this, because you can see how the social cognitive stuff is very talking about the mind mechanistically, like a, the mechanics of it. But at a certain point, it's just this idea of we're, we're constantly engaging the world and trying to make sense of that engagement. And we're motivated to see things certain ways. And we can't separate those two things. Our motivation to see things in certain ways shapes the way that we experience our engagement with our world. Motivation was implicit, implicate, sorry, motivation was implicated by showing that the tendency to construct self-serving theories. So think about this, this tendency to, to create, to live a lie that's self-serving. So one that, you know, is designed to kind of support the way that you want to see yourself. The motivation to do that is strongest after people have experienced a failure. Right, so they they may be feeling down. So this need to to create a casual theory or, or a, a, an interpretation of their world that's self-serving. There's a stronger motivation to do that. Again, this is all about this dissonance idea. Why? Because it's like that failure that they had created a disharmony, created a. a if you're looking at like a, a thermometer and zeros like normal, it like pulled it way down below zero and and, and this self-serving theory is an attempt to pull it back up. So we always hear about samples. Okay, so this is a fascinating study on sample size. So basically this idea of like, do you consider, um, so say in a study, they did a study of these people and they found this and it's like whatever the study was about and whatever the finding was is you know kind of of secondary importance the point is how much do you care about how many people were involved in that study so let's say um okay people were experiencing extreme depression and, and a new interesting line of research is giving psilocybin mushrooms to these people in controlled clinical settings and and seeing how and maybe you find that it has a, a complete reduction of symptoms okay are you talking about one person because that's kind of interesting but probably just anecdotal or are you talking about thousands of people in which case that might be a major breakthrough now here's the thing do you want what i just said to be true or not because what the interesting social psychological research shows on this is that 
if you want what I said to be true, you're willing to accept it with a much smaller sample size. So you won't necessarily care as much that that was only true for 10 people. But if you don't want it to be true, the fact that it was only 10 people is going to matter more to you. Now, again, it the I kind of just made up that example on the on the spot. But this study. So just look at the title of this. When bad isn't all bad, the strategic use of sample information in generalizations and stereotyping. So this study looked at how a sample size influenced how much authority people gave the message that the study was supposed to say. So participants dismissed a small sample size as too small when it pointed to an undesirable conclusion, but not when it pointed to a desirable one. <laughs> so it's kind of hilarious at a certain point. It just shows how weird humans are, right? It's like we care that it's a small sample when it serves us to care and we don't when it doesn't. Now, again, now that you know that, you're less likely going to be influenced by that. So again, this is this is all talking about the mechanisms of how we're influenced by our emotions, how our cognitions are influenced by our emotions, the mechanisms behind this. And part of it is be, by drawing desired conclusions. It's literally that we want to think that way. We see some evidence that supports it. We're going to accept it a little bit more willingly. And I'm going to get into this with a few other examples. But in this situation, it's related to specifically related to sample size. And this is a really interesting example of a study that basically shows people care to, about it to the effect of, well, is it supporting what I'm saying or not? And if it's not, then I'm going to be very critical. And if it is, then I'm going to accept it basically outright. And we're going to see that this tendency carries into different realms. And I'm saying my point of today is this is all a threat if we're actually interested in being critical, rational thinkers. It's funny because I just I sat down and I did this by just kind of old school. I had so this week I. I had some time I just really attacked this book and I was just kind of in a in a groove on this topic and into it and about halfway through the chapter I just get hit with this quote it's Kunda 1999 and I told you I really like this teacher and she's passed away and it's it's been a kind of interesting experience going back through this uh, at, a, at a deeper level and preparing to share it with you um because again, like teaching something's a lot different than just reading it because I have to try to think of examples of how to explain it. And it's just a, deep, a deeper level of engagement. But check out this quote that this kind of hit me. Motivation appears to have its effect by harnessing the cognitive system to its service. By harnessing the cognitive system. And that's interesting because to me the word harnessing really... Has like a horseback riding connotation, right? Like it's this idea of like motivation is actually riding on the cognitive system. It's actually you'll sometimes hear people talk talk about an idea called the amygdala hijack. That it's actually the amygdala um, or or the limbic emotional system hijacking or taking control of the prefrontal cortex. 
when we're when we're in a stressed situation and it's why we do things when we're stressed out and upset and mad like saying things to our loved ones that then when we're calm later we wish we didn't when we're more rational and when our motivation isn't harnessing our cognitive system to its service So heuristics means our rules for explaining things, right? Our way of understanding. How do we understand and make sense of things? And research that looks at this, this idea of inferential rules or how we infer like why things are the way they are shows that we have at our disposal kind of different rules that we use, which in, if we're looking at this, using this language, you'd call it like, different um, different heuristics. Heuristics just means ways of understanding, right? So this is this idea that sometimes we might look at, our brain basically has these shortcuts that sometimes we use shortcuts or what we could call like representative. This person did, this woman did this, this person's also a woman, she must be like this. This person's a white person, this person is also a white person, they must be like this. This person's a kid, this person's also a kid, it must be like this. It's like super, at a certain level, a kind of lower level, quick, this person is representative of something else, so they must be the same. As a term, in comparison to like a more statistical heuristic, where it's a more kind of evolved analytic look at the same problem, right? So why does this matter? It's basically saying that how motivated we are and the way that we're motivated. So again, I made this point a little earlier. It's like, if I'm supporting a certain political party and you come up and you start saying things that are also supporting that same party, but you're talking about some situation I haven't even heard of, I'm gonna be more quick to accept that because I'm motivated be to have what you're saying be true because it's supporting what, you know, uh, my position. We may be particularly likely to call on those heuristics that allow us to arrive at our desired conclusion. This is my whole point today. When we have these desired conclusions, it shapes the whole information processing process. Processing process, but that's exactly what it is, even though that sounds like a weird phrase. On that last slide, I said processing process. I should have said processing mechanism. It's like the processing mechanism of our brain. Um, so check out this. This is another interesting thing. It's like, so also that our motivation or how much we want to think certain ways also affects how much effort we put into thinking about things. When we come across effort, and I kind of already talked about this, but it's actually not just um, things like sample or things like, source bias it's also looking at this idea of like we actually spend more effort when it's something that goes against our thoughts so say you're you know you're i'll, I'll use a canadian political example say you're a, a conservative canadian and you hear people making a point that's like a traditional like kind of liberal point it's like you're gonna muster more of an argument against that you're gonna engage more of this slower conscious analytic rational system too right if we look at basically you're gonna engage more of your 
analytic. So now think about what this is actually saying. It's almost saying now this system one, system two links to uh, if, you, if you have a minute, I would recommend looking up a video called um, slow and fast thinking or two. I think that's what it's called. I'll find it for you. Um, the guy's last name slipping me. Um, but he makes this really interesting point about these two systems of thought and that when we're kind of in this automatic emotional we're we're actually engaging our reality in this much more kind of um stereotypical surface level type of processing we're not in this deeper conscious analytic rational and it's not that we have two brains it's that it's it's two kind of processing systems it is just like a kind of helpful way of thinking about it that i'll just read what it says there when we come across evidence that supports our desired conclusions we may accept it at face value but when we come across comparable evidence that challenges our desired conclusion we may evaluate it more critically and work hard to refute it so as you know, I'm very interested in, in all of this course, this developmental psychology, but also it's kind of sister subfield of psychology of evolutionary psychology. Those two go so, so intimately together as developmental psychology is how, you know, we develop within one lifetime and evolutionary psychology is how we evolve across multiple lifetimes. And so one thing kunda hits on in this chapter is maybe there's an evolutionary aspect to this and maybe there's some normative considerations this means like maybe it's actually this is actually a more normal human thing than we think and maybe some of the positive illusions we may have about ourselves or this tendency for us to try to see ourselves in a positive light maybe that there's an adaptive aspect to that our self-perceptions tend to be overly flattering and we often exaggerate the extent to which we control events in our lives. Our expectations about our future are often unrealistically rosy. Again, not always, maybe not currently in this current climate, but this is in general talking about humans. But there is one group of people that don't display these illusions to the same degree. People that score high in depression Perhaps then these unrealistically positive beliefs contribute to general happiness and well-being. And perhaps without them, the threats and difficulties of our daily life would doom us to misery and depression. Moreover, our glowing views of ourselves and our prospects and our exaggerated sense of control may do more than make us feel good. They may also increase our motivation and effort and lead us to persist at difficult tasks, even in the face of initial failure. These positive expectations may become self-fulfilling. If you believe in yourself, you'll often do what it takes to make those beliefs come true. And that's from a, a related research study from Armour and Taylor in 1998, but they're looking at depression. Right, and it might be having a slightly positive viewing yourself as as possibly a little bit more capable than you really are might actually be helpful. Now I'm gonna add a big but to this point in just a second. 
But first, the second point here. Positive illusions about other people may be adaptive as well. So let's let's talk about this in relation to something like dating that I'm sure something that's a lot of you are interested in. Um, everybody is obviously like idealization of partners tends to be associated with satisfaction. So think about that for a sec. Couples that have more rosy views of their partner tend to report higher levels of relationship satisfaction. Now, there's obviously a hidden caveat in this. I'm not saying that we should be. That's why I have the word illusion in quotes. Um, there's obviously a point to this where it becomes unhealthy. Um, and I'll get to that in a sec. Individuals were also happier the more the partner idealized them. So now think about this, that it's bi-directional. So it's like people tended to be happier when they idealized their partners more. So what you'd basically do is you'd get some kind of scale that assessed how much people idealize their partners, also how much their partners idealize them, and then also independently rate their relationship satisfaction scores. Data shows that the more positively you view your partner in an intimate relationship, the more likely you are to be uh, happy, satisfied with that relationship. So now here's the other thing is that, or sorry here, I just want to say this uh, before I read that next point I just put up there. Despite these advantages of positive illusions, it's important to note that motivated illusions can sometimes get you into serious trouble. This is especially true when motivated reasoning leads you to play down the significance of real threats or prevents you from carrying out behaviors that could protect you from danger. Right, like viewing somebody that's abusive as, well, minimizing it. Positive illusions may be especially beneficial when they concern global judgments that do not form the basis of immediate actions. So for example, it might be good for everyone if everyone kind of thinks that their fellow humans are good people. But in a very specific situation, that might not be the best way to engage things. Right? Like just just lend anybody your car because people in general are good. And why should you not lend this random person? You know, that was a weird example for me to just bring up. But it's this idea of like these positive illusions I'll just I'll just read this whole point positive illusions may be especially beneficial when they concern global judgments that don't serve as the basis for immediate action but motivated reasoning can be costly and dangerous when it's used to guide important behaviors and decisions especially in situations where more objective reasoning could could give rise to a more beha appropriate behavior let me read that last part again because I stumbled there Motivated reasoning can be costly and dangerous when it is used to guide important behaviors and decisions, especially in situations where more objective reasoning could give rise to more appropriate behavior. So, okay, so here's an interesting point. So one thing that they're really interested in um, in social cognition is, okay, so directional goals is this idea of people wanting things to go a certain direction, right? So you have a question like, um, 
that you're trying to research and you want a certain answer to be the right one. You're motivated to arrive at a particular conclusion. In contrast, an accuracy goal is a situation where your goal is to be right. As right as possible. Now, you might think that our goal would always be to be right, but that's not necessarily true. Accuracy goals may arise for different reasons. I'm reading from the book now. You may be motivated to be accurate because you know you're accountable to others. You may be motivated to be accurate because you know a lot rides on your decision. Chances are that you'll have strong accuracy goals when you expect that a wrong decision could cost you a great deal of money, could ruin your reputation, could undermine a project you care deeply about, or could cause you to treat others unfairly. Accuracy, accuracy goals lead people to favor the elaborate over the cursory processing. I'll say it again. Uh, it says it on the screen underneath the act, underneath the bow, uh, the dartboard with the arrow or whatever, the target. Accuracy goals lead people to favor the elaborate or like the deeper processing over the cursory or like surface level processing. Rather than freezing their judgment process as soon as they arrive at some semblance of an answer, people motivated to be accurate will continue thinking and reasoning until they're satisfied that they have arrived at the best possible conclusion. Okay, some important points here though is that accuracy does not, an accuracy goal doesn't actually increase accuracy. So just because you want to be right doesn't actually make you more likely to be right. Or I shouldn't say that. I should say it doesn't guarantee that you'll be right. It doesn't guarantee an increase in accuracy. Now engaging in this deeper level of processing would definitely increase the likelihood of it, but it doesn't guarantee it. Okay, so sorry, I wanted to change that. I'm saying it doesn't guarantee, not that it doesn't increase. Because this point, when careful thought leads us to bring forth more faulty rules, accuracy goals will increase errors and bias. For example, it's been shown that asking people to reflect upon the reasons for their preferences can lead them to focus on the wrong criteria. Right, so if I ask, if, I, if say for example, because that seems weird, right, and thereby they reduce the quality of their judgment. So for example, this is one that I always give to people. If somebody walks in the room and you think that person's attractive, you make that decision in a split second. And if I was to pause, take that person out immediately and ask you what you found attractive and that you had to be right and that this answer had a lot of weight to it, you're probably going to actually give me the wrong information because the reality is you don't really know why you found them attractive. You might think it's because of their height or their hair color or the their broad shoulders, whatever you think it is. It's like your brain made a split second symmetry related calculation and decide so it's this idea of like the you actually thinking deeply about something that was largely automatic might actually make you more wrong so i'll read that again when careful thought brings us to bring forth more faulty rules or more faulty or wrong explanations accuracy goals will actually increase our errors and bias 
For example, it's been shown that asking people to reflect carefully upon the reasons for their preferences can actually lead them to focus on the wrong criteria and thereby reduce the quality of their judgment. That's research by uh, Wilson and Schuller, uh, 1991. So this, you can tell like a lot of this research is in the early 90s. In sum, both directional goals and accuracy goals affect judgment by influencing our choice of beliefs and rules. However, directional goals lead us to favor those beliefs and rules that can support our desired conclusions, whereas accuracy goals lead us to favor those beliefs and rules that seem most appropriate to the task. Right, but the point here is that whether we're trying to see a certain thing or whether we're just trying to, you know, get as accurate of a read as possible shapes how we process information in our world. So on this slide, we're talking about this idea that people can have these like, this is just kind of some useful language to talk about different mindsets, right? So this kind of current snapshot of your cognitive emotional mindset or mind state. And it's like, we can either have a more deliberate or deliberative. So think what the word deliberative means. It means like considering between options. If you're in a program where maybe you're like, like for example, my, the program I teach at Conestoga, the students are in a deliberative state where they're wanting to get into the helping professions and are kind of deciding, you know, are they going to do it through social work? Are they going to do it through policing? Are they going to do it through um, firefighting? Are they going to do it through early childhood education? So deliberative means kind of considering different options. And when people are in a deliberative mindset, that allows us to consider relevant information in a kind of carefully balanced manner. This is more likely to be related to things like accuracy goals. In contrast, when people want things to be a certain way, they can have more of an implemental mindset. So think of what it would mean to implement something. It's like you already think it's, you already know what you think. You don't need to decide. You don't need to weigh things. You just need to go and do what you already think. You need to implement your plan. In contrast, people who have made a decision develop an implemental mindset, which leads them to focus on the thoughts and actions that are necessary to achieve the outcome that they had decided to pursue. They've already made up their mind. They're not in a deliberative state. They're in an implemental mind state. They're past the point of open consideration for alternatives, right? So if you're trying to communicate with someone thinking that they're in a deliberative mind state, but they're in the implemental mind state, you're, uh, you know, depending on the situation, maybe wasting your time. So this is a classic study um, in terms of this idea of de uh, deliberative and implemental mindsets. So in one study, after their mindsets have been manipulated to two groups, so what this means is they basically got one group to be more deliberative and one more implemental by basically giving them different goals. So they tell one of the groups, okay, we want you to um, kind of sit back and kind of analyze and and try to make sense of what you're seeing. And because what we're about to do is, I'll just jump ahead, what we're about to do is have this light on the screen and, and you're gonna be pressing a button that controls that light. 
all right? Now, the implemental group, we're going to have you trying to get the light to do a certain thing. But in the deliberative group, we're just going to get you to watch and, and try to accurately see what's happening. Okay, so I know that only makes maybe some sense, but I'll just read this. In one study, after the mindsets had been manipulated towards either deliberative or implemental, participants turned next to the seemingly unrelated task of estimating the amount of control they had over the onset of a red light they were attempting to turn on by pressing or not pressing a button. So the people then would go into this scenario where there was a light on the wall and they were, they were told to, that if they, that they're pressing the button had some effect on this light. So some people in the deliberate group were told to just notice how much them pressing it either affected or didn't affect it. The people in the implemental group were either trying to make it less or make it more there. They had this goal, this directional goal. So what was the experience? Well, the participants in the deliberative mindset thought they had exercised substantially less control over the light than the participants did in the implemental mindset or control participants. A deliberative mindset that arises when we contemplate an unresolved issue in our life can lead us to suspend our normal illusions about our ability to control other unrelated events in our life. Right, that actually us taking, so now think about this, I'll read this again, I think this kind of demands a second saying, a deliberative mindset, so this kind of weighing the options, a cold calculative mindset that comes when we contemplate unresolved issues in our life can help us suspend the normal illusions that we have. Right? So it's like a functional cognitive strategy. So in the book, uh, Zivakunda quotes President Harry Truman has, as having once said, and that's who's up on the screen there, that he wished that he could find an economic advisor who only had one hand. And that was his joke because he said that like every economic advisor he ever had would always tell him something and then be like, but on the other hand, right, and this this idea of like, uh, can we can we ever just finish the conversation? And this desire to finish the conversation, or to have closure, that that motivation can actually affect our processing of information. When we're motivated to achieve closure, we may freeze our thinking process early, as soon as we've arrived at what seems like a good enough solution. We may also fall back on those rules and beliefs that are most readily available and easy to use, right? So when we want to finish, we might be using this more system, this more surface level processing, using these more simple uh, heuristics like we were talking about earlier. And we might actually, when we're under pressure of time, and when we need to finish, our, we're actually more likely to be biased and less accurate in our thinking. You know, and that's when we're motivated to, to ex experience closure. At other times, we might be motivated to avoid closure. I'm reading from the book now. And to this end, we might attempt to prolong the judgment process and to 
postpone arriving at a clear conclusion for as long as possible. Accuracy goals may provide or may provoke a motivation to avoid closure, right? Because we might be wanting to be right. And we might want to, you know, not leave any stones unturned. If we're afraid of making a mistake and we know that we may have committed ourselves to a particular conclusion uh, that might be open to criticism or punishment, we may wish to put off the moment of truth. Therefore, the consequence of closure avoidance can be expected to be the same as the consequences of accuracy goals. The greater accuracy and the fewer biases when increased effort yields reliance on better reasoning uh, strategies, but not otherwise. Closure goals can influence the amount of time and effort we devote to our judgment tasks and thereby influence the quality of our judgments. When elaborate thought results in more appropriate reasoning, the more elaborate scrutiny triggered by the need to avoid closure can eliminate bias. Let me say that again. When elaborate thought results in more appropriate reasoning, the more elaborate scrutiny triggered by the need to avoid closure can actually eliminate bias. So to conclude this kind of broad mini section in this presentation on goals, we've talked about directional goals, accuracy goals, closure goals, and these all influence judgment by influencing the cause, the cognitive processes of engaging and processing relevant information. Goals may influence what, which beliefs and rules we access and apply to the judgment at hand, and may also influence the amount of time and effort we devote to judgment. As a result, people with different goals may arrive at very different judgments, and the same individuals may find themselves drawing different conclusions from the same information as their goals shift. The impact of these goals and desires on our judgment constitutes the central aspect of what we're calling in this presentation, hot cognition. So we spent a lot of time today talking about this ability of emotional states to influence our cognitive processing. And I want to kind of end today this last little bit talking about specifically affect or specifically mood and how it affects our judgment, how it affects how it's a source of priming, how it's a source of information, and how also it affects our cognitive strategies. So I want to kind of end with just a few minutes on how this in the moment mood or experience of affect has this potentially disruptive or highly influential impact on our cognitive experience. And I just have a few more kind of specific things to touch on to kind of round out this conversation. So the first idea I want to talk about here is this idea of mood congruent judgment. Now think about this for a sec. So I have this uh, image there, number nine on the on the England team. You can see it's uh, this is a picture of England against Portugal in the World Cup. Uh, number nine there, Wayne Rooney was always my favorite player. And it's like, if you had to ask me at the end of this game, so Portugal won this game, if you asked me to talk about the Portugal team, you know, I would have had nothing nice to say. And it's like the fact that I was in a bad mood because England lost would have actually made me even more bitter. Right. And it's like, like, that's like 
common to any sports fan ever for all of time. It's like our judgments are mood congruent. Right? If you're in a bad mood, you're going to think things are worse. That's why when my grandpa was alive, like one of his sayings he used to always say was like, and this is good advice for you, for me and for you. It's like, when you're in a bad mood, it's not the right time to evaluate your life. Right? If you're having a crappy day and if you're in a, in, in a sour mood, it's it's not a good time to think about your financial situation and your friends and your boyfriend or girlfriend and your parents and your school situation. It's like, it's because it's... It's you're you're having mood congruent judgments, and again, it's a it's a threat to critical thinking. And if we're trying to be mature adults that have a reasonable, or that are making a reasonable effort to accurately make sense of their experienced world, it's like we got to be aware of this tendency that we tend. To give more positive answers to questions when we're in a good mood and give more negative answers when we're in a bad mood. It's at a certain point as simple as that. Participants in a negative group described, described in a negative mood described other groups in society in more unfavorable terms than those in a neutral or a positive mood. Now this is interesting because this actually seems to not be bi-directional. Right? It's like However, when study uh, participants were put were in more positive moods, they didn't necessarily see other people more positively, right? So it's not necessarily in both directions. However, bad moods may increase our prejudice towards negatively stereotyped groups and lead us to see them even more negatively, right? Whatever the negatively stereotyped groups in whatever that they are in the context you're in, right? So any groups that you don't like, you like even less when you're in a bad mood. And that's why that's such an important thing to understand if we want to ever heal our social world. If, uh, say my daughter is like, Say I'm making lunch for my daughter and I make her soup and I give it to her. It's like the presentation is important if I want her to actually eat it. It's like I'll put it in a nice bowl. I'll be like, hey, Evie, do you want this? She she loves this show on the Disney Channel called The Gummy Bears, which I used to um, watch when I was a kid. It's like, I don't know, it's kind of like a old school cartoon. And they drink this gummy berry juice, whatever. It's just like part of the show. So I call, so I, I'll like make the, the soup and be like, do you want some magical gummy berry soup or whatever? And it's like, that's called priming, right? It's I didn't just put the soup in front of her. I like made a story about the soup that was intended to shape how she saw it. And priming is used in advertising all the time. But it's this idea that understanding mood as a prime Right, that when we're in our bad mood, it's actually easy for us to pull on what he's calling nodes or just like um, emotions that will keep us in that mood and also pull in events or memories that will keep us in this network of congruent mood memory relation. Gordon Bower proposed that mood congruent judgments resulted from this 
mood congruent memory congruent just means that they're aligned that they're the same it's it's uh yeah so uh congruent just means that mood congruent memory means that when you're sad you're having sad memories when you're happy you're having happy memories and that your mood tends to actually affect your memory retrieval and that when you're in a bad mood it actually seems to make you more likely to have more bad memories and thoughts in bauer's network model when a node representing an effective so a node is just like one of those circles on his graph or one of those cylinders or whatever nodes just each individual piece uh node is like a, a modeling word for each individual unit that doesn't matter but just so you know uh when a node representing an affect state such as happy is activated activation spreads to nodes representing other people or objects or events that are also associated with that state so now that was for happy same for sad when when somebody's sad it's like it's it's like this idea that activation spreads to all your thoughts about people or objects or events that make you sad isn't that interesting isn't that sort of what it feels like the notion of mood driven priming provides a plausible account for many mood congruent judgments thus there's strong reason to believe that mood often influences judgment because it primes mood congruent materials relevant to that judgment so that's an interesting piece of nuance a layer of additional complexity i want to read read you here i want to read you a little piece it's not always easy to tell where our moods are coming from we may use our moods as a direct source of information about our judgments when we're unaware of the actual source of our mood, we may mistakenly attribute it to the object of our judgment. As a result, our judgment will be congruent with our mood. So what's an example of that? For example, uh, Swartz and Clore, this is an, actually an old study from 1983, 1983. In this study, they contacted students and asked them about how happy they were. And they wanted to see if the weather on the day that they called the students had any effect. And what they found is that students contacted on sunny days were more happier at the moment that they were contacted than those that were contacted on rainy days. Moreover, their judgments on their overall life satisfaction were congruent with their moods. On sunny days, students reported a greater overall happiness with their lives than on rainy days. It's as if we may use mood as a rough indicator of our overall life satisfaction. Unless we're reminded that our mood may be due to a transient factor such as weather and just that people generally feel worse when it's poor weather. And as soon as we're given that reminder, we may attribute our mood to that transient factor like the weather and discount the relevance to other judgments, meaning that it might not actually mean that our life's crappy or whatever, and no longer make those mood congruent judgments. Right, so it's like our defense against this clouded emotional thinking is using our rational mind to challenge it. In sum, mood can affect judgment by both priming mood-related material and by serving as a source of information that bears on the judgment.
also we've kind of touched on this, but just as kind of a last point here, that our mood can also determine what cognitive strategies we use. So basically the process our brain uses to make sense of our situation. This is from the text. In addition to influencing the contents of judgment, affect or emotion may also influence the cognitive strategies we apply to make the judgment. When we're in a bad mood, we may be especially likely to use elaborate, more systematic processing strategies for at least two reasons. Number one, a bad mood may inform us that we have a problem that we need to deal with. We then, modal, we then mobilize our cognitive resources to solve the problem, and this intensified processing may generalize to other judgment tasks as well. Number two, or secondly, bad moods are inherently unpleasant. In an attempt to rid ourselves from such unpleasant states, we may throw ourselves into a distracting tasks that come our way. Eisland in his research in 1987 found this. When we're in a good mood, on the other hand, we may be especially likely to use a more heuristic, simplified processing strategy. We may be more likely to kind of just go with the flow and engage things at a surface level. Right? And that's kind of how it feels, right? When people are depressed, they do tend to... Uh, ruminate on things, right? Like, kind of fixate. It's a very common aspect of depression. Although there's still debate about exactly why moods influence the choice of cognitive strategies, uh, several lines of research support the conclusion that happy moods are often conducive to heuristic processing, where sad moods are more linked with systematic processing. Right? So if you're trying to sell somebody a car, get them in a happy mood, and they're less likely to be, uh, what about the fuel mileage? What about, you know, a depressed, now again, we're using depressed in a more general state, but this idea that like, when we're in a negative mood, we're more likely to be focused on that deeper level engagement, whether positive or negative, that can definitely be negative at times. Right, overthinking everything, but that our mood can determine the level of analysis we treat in the moment situations with. It's a pretty kind of interesting thought. So this is a kind of interesting point. I want to just I have just a couple slides left here. This idea of how this how mood relates to persuasion that if people how much you're able to persuade someone is heavily influenced by how much they care about whatever the thing is people find strong arguments more persuasive than weak ones but only if they're processing the message systematically like if they don't really care and they're not really listening the quality of argument has less effect if for whatever reason they allocate fewer cognitive resources to the message and process it in a more quick and dirty manner They'll no longer find a strong argument more persuasive than a weak one. In fact, they're more likely to rely on things such as cues like attractiveness, likability, expertise. You know, liking Trudeau's hair or his eyes. It's like, you know, and I've, I even heard my wife say that. She thinks that Trudeau's eyes are dreamy. It's like, you know, I'm sure, not, I'm sure lots of people do. And it's like, when... 
oh yeah, it's like that's like basically politics and acting and everything, right? It's like when when we're not engaging things deeply, we're more likely to be impressed by things like physical attractiveness, popularity, people, you know, on a commercial for medicine that aren't even a doctor, but they're just wearing a white lab coat. And it's just kind of, if you're not overthinking about it and you're just kind of catching it in the background, it's like, it's just hitting that like doctor cue. Right? It's a more surface level and it's aiming at a certain surface level. If you're interested in this at all, you should check out something called ELM, which is the elaboration likelihood method. No, sorry, the elaboration likelihood model. And it's like, it's an important thing in sales. Like how much, if you're going to talk to somebody, how likely are they to deeply elaborate and go deep into something? Or are they just going to make a surface decision? So that's the elaboration likelihood model. How likely are they to elaborate and think deeply about it? Or are they just taking you at a surface level? Because you knowing that shapes how you engage them. Again, if, if we're talking like in a sales setting. And one, one really important thing I wanted to make this point is that if we're wanting as a society to get more, well, to heal and to become civil with each other and to, you know, create a world where we can all exist and all of our children can have happy, prosperous lives, we need to understand that when we're stressed, and especially when we're under pressure, we have a tendency to think more stereotypically. If we, if we actually want to reduce that, we need to understand how stereotypical thinking is directly related to the allocation of cognitive resources. When we're not thinking deeply, when we're stressed, when we're time pressured, we have a greater reliance on these heuristic processing tricks or these rules. These people are like this. These people are like this these kind of surface level generalizations, this lower level of cognition that, I'll just read this, conditions that give rise to quick and easy heuristic processing may also give rise to stereotypical congruent judgments. Our ability to inhibit stereotypes may break down if we allocate too much or too few, sorry, cognitive resources to judgment tasks and try to breeze through it using low effort mental shortcuts. When this happens, we may show greater reliance on stereotypes in our judgments. So in sum, um, I'm going to give a little summary in just a sec, but I also want to say in the next few days, I'm going to release a second video talking about how this relates to the next assignment. Um, so if you're if you're waiting for that, just I want you to know that that's coming. I'm going to do a specific video doing that directly. Uh, but just to sum up today, I just want to make these last two points that the term hot cognition, it's again, this is more of a term that was had its time in the early, was kind of situated in the early 90s. But I think it has relevance today. And I think it's it's a useful way of viewing this stuff and viewing the threat that our motivational, emotional content has to our critical thinking. This term hot cognition captures the fact that our judgments and decisions can be quote unquote heated up by our desires and emotions, as well as the fact that this heating up 
operates on and through our cognition. We're actually talking about our neurocircuitry, that our motives and our moods may influence the cognitive strategies that we use and which actual cognitive structures we bring to mind, how our brain is operationalizing. Anyways, we're clear. We're coming up on almost two hours. I hope you enjoyed that and, and maybe learned something and, and had some interesting thoughts about how it relates to your own life. And again, that's going to be kind of part of the aim of this next uh, digital workshop. But I'm going to do a video specifically on that because, uh, I don't know, I'll just keep it nice and clean and I'll do a separate thing on that. So thanks for watching. Cheers. Love your class. And... Uh, you know, take care of your loved ones and yourself and stay positive. All right. Resist the or just be aware of the potential threat of hot cognition to, to knock you off your course and and realize, you know, sometimes it makes sense to be emotional, but also sometimes. Cooler cognitions may uh, be more appropriate. All right. Take care of yourself. Cheers.